Thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. We hope that you are encouraged by these messages and that God will continue to bless you. And now, today's sermon. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. To Matthew chapter 1 as we look at this subject. Good story, bad story. God's story. We're going to look at lessons from the genealogy of Jesus. Lessons from the genealogy of Jesus. We're going to read that passage together in just a moment, and I believe you'll have the passage on the screen as well, but I encourage you also, if you have a hard copy of the Bible or on your phone, just simply uh, follow along there as well. The Bible has several genealogies. They're not typically the types of passages, especially the lengthy ones like this one. They're not the ones we typically memorize, are they? Uh, They're the kind of passages sometimes when you get to them and you see all those big names, you kind of, in a Bible study, go, oh, I hope they don't call on me. Just do what I'm about to do. I'm going to read them all with confidence as if I'm pronouncing them right, and then you just kind of go on from there. That's in just a minute. We're going to do that. But... Genealogies are interesting as I've over the years as been a pastor, I've looked at the different ones in the scriptures and, and I found out that I have a great aunt who was very interested in our last name, the Brazel genealogy, and I never, I never really got into it that much, honestly, before that. I just kind of thought, well, I'm from South Carolina, but my grandparents came from Georgia to come work at South Carolina, and that's about as far back as it went. But one day, somewhere several years back, I decided I'm going to try to go down this genealogy rabbit hole. And I started online, we got all these great tools now, and I didn't pay for any of the services or anything, but I just started digging, and I found this grave that went back to great-granddaddy. I said, oh, cool, I never met this great-grandfather, but then I saw his dad. And then it sent me to another site and saw his dad, and I kept tracing Braswell, Braswell, all the way back. And the best I could tell, it goes back, I don't know if my research is accurate, it's just a little bit of internet digging, but apparently uh, we came from England as far back, I can go back to the 1400s, and I could trace where the first Braswell came across uh, to Virginia, actually, and somehow we made our way down from there. I couldn't help but notice one of them, he had like thousands of acres of land, and as I read some sort of um, official document. It looked like he was very wealthy, and I thought, "Wow, oh, what happened to all the money? You know, why didn't it make it down to, to us, to us Braswells?" And my brother pointed out, he said, "Yeah, but look at all the kids these people were having. You're talking 14 kids, 12 kids, 10 kids." He said, "Keep divvying that up, even if they're smart with it, it, it only lasts so long." But I don't know. But genealogy, there's power in genealogy. How many times? When we, as a minister, I can think of the times that I've reached out and, and, and tried to do counseling and those kinds of things with people. When we have problems in our lives, many times what? We could trace them back to our, to our stories. We could trace them back to maybe genealogy to, well, my granddad was this and my dad was this, and I followed right in those footsteps. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. But the good news is this, God's never done with us. And I pray today that as we... Read this genealogy that we see a little bit of lessons that we can learn from the genealogy of Jesus as we get ready to celebrate Christmas. Matthew, he does not even talk about the birth narrative. He starts with this genealogy. So with that said, let's read it together. I want you to notice before I read it that it is in three parts. It's going to take you from Abraham to David, and then from King David to Babylon, and then from Babylon to up to Jesus. Just notice that some of the names you're going to recognize. 
You're going to think, oh, I remember a story about that guy. There's going to be some women in the story. You're going to remember them. There's going to be some names you may not know. But think about those things as we read this genealogy together, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Terah by Tamar, remember her? And Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Verse 5, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, who you know is Bathsheba maybe. Verse 7, Solomon the, Sol- the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, here's the next line, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Notice, Abraham to David, now David to the Babylonian captivity. Verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiod, Abiod the father of Elohim, Elohim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Iliad, Iliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, verse 16, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Amen. God's word. What we have here is three sets of 14 generations. We won't take the time this morning, but if you compare this to Luke, some people will point out, and rightly so, that, that some of the names are different. There's a lot of, lot of reasons for that and, and, and things that people have put into for that. But I want to point out that Matthew, very intentionally, he's not so much interested in naming every single literal father in between those things, but he's doing something, uh, it's a literary device, actually. If you take the name David, the three consonants, for our terms, we'll say D, V, and D, but in Hebrew, of course, it, it, it makes a number that adds up to seven, and the idea is that there's three sets of 14, because you've got 14 names, 14 names, 14 names. It's a play on the idea that they're focusing on that Jesus is the Messiah. And today, I want to look at what I believe are lessons from this genealogy. One of these passages where, where many times it's easy to go, well, let's skip over that boring stuff and let's get to the meat of the, the, the story. I think God is telling us through, the, through uh, Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this is part of the meat of the story. This is the backstory that gets us up to the birth of Jesus. As we think about Advent and, and the hope and the love and the joy where we anticipate Christ, 
Let's think about the lessons we can learn from this genealogy. Point number one is this. The gospel, that is the message of Jesus, the gospel is the reality of good news. The gospel is is the reality of good news. If you think back to stories, fairy tales, they'll start like this. They'll say, once upon a time, or they'll say, somewhere in a galaxy far, far away, or those kinds of things. Sometimes that's a way of the writer of that story telling you what I'm about to tell you may or may not have happened. I used to serve with a pastor, and he would say this when he'd try to, he was, he was, real, he was very funny. He always had, he had, like, every week he'd come up with a joke. I, I was like, I don't know how he cranks them out every week, but he would say this. He would say, you know, I'd never tell you anything that wasn't true. And when he said that, you knew he was kidding and he was going to tell a funny story. Well, there's a lot of great story writers out there, and there's a lot of stories you can read, fairy tales. There's some great movies out there about a lot of things. But one of the reasons that I believe that Matthew starts with a genealogy is he wants you and I to know the fact that this gospel is a reality. These events, this Jesus, the stories we read about in Scripture, they actually happened. It's not just a bunch of made-up stuff. There's faith groups. There are belief systems out there that you could follow, and it really wouldn't matter if their leader of the faith group lived or not. Because a lot of the ways of, of looking at faith or ways of looking at religion pretty much have to do with if I live a certain way, if I follow certain moral things, and if I'm just sort of nice to people and those kind of things, then I'm going to be all right. And it doesn't even matter if, if the person they write about really lived or died. But the gospel hinges on the fact whether or not, it certainly hinges on the fact whether or not Jesus existed or not. Matthew's pointing out, not only does he exist, but I can tell you the whole backstory to how we get to this point. As I was studying uh, this passage, I, I came across an, uh, an, a fascinating story. I don't know if you're familiar with the Wycliffe Bible translators. They're, they're an incredible ministry, been around for quite some time, named after one of the great English translations of the, translators of the Bible, John Wycliffe. What they do is these Wycliffe translators spend their entire life going into parts of the world where there are people groups who have, who have, number one, have never heard about Jesus, but number two, they don't have Bibles. They don't even have written languages. These are small pockets of people groups who are very much, you would consider, third world, but maybe even more so. They don't have anything written down, and people spend their lives as Wycliffe missionaries going into a village, going into a people group, getting to know those people, number one, but after that, figuring out how to talk to them so that then they can give those people a written language, so that then they can make a copy of God's Word for them. I'm talking about people who don't spend three or four years as a missionary. I'm talking about 20, 30, 40 years of work. Incredible, incredible story. And there was a particular missionary couple named Des and Jenny. Des and Jenny were Wycliffe missionaries. And listen to this, they purposely chose the smallest language group they could find. It was a little small community of people in Papua New Guinea with less than 300 people because they wanted to demonstrate that God cared for even the weak, that God cared for even the small amount. And in that story, Des and Jenny began to work with these people for 20, 30 years. They began to get to know them. They finally figure out how to verbally talk. 
Then they take that verbal language and they figure out a way to write it down. And then they teach those people how to read their own language that Des and Jenny just did for them. You're talking their kids are grown by now. And then finally, they translated Matthew. And as I was looking at the story, Des and Jenny translated the entire Gospel of Matthew except for one part. And can you guess which part they, they did last? It was the genealogy that we just read. Because number one, they, they shared they didn't think much of it. And number two, it's easy, right? You're just going to translate those names and just kind of jot it down and, and, you're just, and you're good. But then some incredible things took place after that. And I'm going to wait and tell you about those incredible things at the, end of the, at the end of the service today. So hold on to Des and Jenny as we think about this genealogy. But the point number one I want you to take is this. The gospel is a reality. It's, some, one person said it this way. It's not just good advice. It's good news. Matthew is wanting you and I to understand that this story of Jesus he's about to tell has, is bedrocked in history. In fact, it's been coming for hundreds of of years. Point number two is this, the second lesson. God is always at work in history, and Jesus is in the center of it. I'll say that again. God is always working in history, and Jesus is in the center of it. Hold your place in Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to turn back to two verses, or simply I can read them for you either way. We're going to turn back to Genesis chapter 12, because I want you to see exactly what God said to Abraham. Remember as we read, who are the two key players besides Jesus in the story? It was Abraham, and then it was David. So I think to see where God is showing us that Jesus is the center of history, I want to go back to Genesis chapter 12. And I want you to either follow along or listen as I read verse number 1 and verse through verse number 3. This is what it says this. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and who dishonors you I will curse Look at the last phrase. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We're seeing Matthew make a connection between the promise that God gave Abraham, that he's going to bless him, he's going to make him a great name, but all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. The Old Testament is not so much about building a nation, but it's about bringing a redeemer. It's about bringing the Messiah. And if you notice in verse 1, go back and look at it. I'm back in Matthew. If you go back to Matthew, verse 1 says the genealogy of who? Jesus Christ. Jesus, the word Christ, that's not Jesus' last name. It's a, it's, a, it's a description. Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one. And he names two people, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's tying it all together that Jesus is the center of the story. Jesus is the center of history. And it all began with God's promise to Abraham, that Jesus is that Christ, he is the anointed one. But not just Abraham, but look at David. I want you to look at another passage of scripture with me, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'll turn there, and again, I can read it to you or follow along. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. These are some words that God shared with David. And by the way, in the story of David, this is before 
He sinned against God and committed adultery. This is before his murder of Uriah. This is before a lot of those things. But this is what God told David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. He said this to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish, what? His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. Verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And we'll turn back to Matthew. Brothers and sisters, God is telling David in that passage that there is coming a day when his kingdom will be, will be no end. It's never going to end. He's going to fulfill it. He's going he's to send one who's going to establish that throne. Matthew is making the point that that person is Jesus. I told you at the beginning that the Hebrew letters of the name of David add up to 14. Uh, Given Matthew's emphasis on this lineage, it wouldn't be surprising to see that he's making the point of, see what I'm doing? This is all about Jesus. Even when you go back to the story of David, David is pointing to Jesus. We live in a world today where it doesn't seem like if you watch the news or if you scroll through your phone at different news places or social media We don't, as a society, really act as if Jesus is the center of history, do we? Whether we're on the political right, whether we're on the political left, whatever our ideologies are, sometimes we think the world's going to fall apart if it's not going the way I think it's supposed to go. Let me remind us that according to this passage, that Jesus is the center of history. God's not up in heaven wringing his hands over whatever's going on in our world. I worry a lot about it. I don't know about y'all, but if if I let myself out, I'll spend a lot of time thinking about it. But God has everything under control because God is always at work and Jesus is in the center of history. Point number three. God is working his purposes. Let me say this, good and bad. He's working his purposes in the good and the bad. When you see this story. I want you to go back and look at a couple of the names that are in here because I want you to see that there's some bad parts of the story in here. For example, look at verse uh, number three. It says, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar was the woman who tricked her father-in-law to impregnate her by dressing like a prostitute. And there's other parts of the story in there as well that do not paint that entire family in a positive light. For that matter, you could even trace it back to their dad. I don't know if you noticed, but it said Judah and his brothers. Well, Judah, he was one of the 12, what we consider the 12 tribes of Israel, because that was the son of Jacob. Think about Jacob's life. Jacob himself, his name literally means tricky one, and he lived up to the test as he stole his brother's birthright, as he bargained with God at Jacob's ladder, and then finally you you see where he wrestled with God. A lot of mistakes, a lot of things where when you have Thanksgiving dinner, you may not want to talk about. I don't know if y'all have things like that in your family where where there's a lot of bad stuff that maybe happened. What about David himself? Committed adultery, committed murder to cover it up. 
On and on we could go. Who did God use to hide the spies in the book of Joshua? Well, she's mentioned in this passage, isn't she? Rahab. Again, Rahab the prostitute. You see, time and time again, you see catastrophe. And I don't know about you, but if I was Matthew, I may not have worded it exactly like this, except hopefully I listened to the Lord. But when you think about it, he goes from Abraham, that's a big name, right? That's the name you want on the marquee. People know Abraham. People know David. That's a big deal. David, even with all his mistakes, it was still said he was a man after God's own heart. But Matthew intentionally makes the point, well, you got from Abraham to David, and then let's talk about from David to the deportation of Babylon. If you go back and read the stories of the kings that came after David, it's sort of almost, you got some roller coasters of repentance and revival here and there, but it's just kind of like, here's David and it's sort of a little roller coaster, but kind of heading downhill from there. Time and time again, go back and read Chronicles. Go back and read 2 Kings. You know what it'll say? Here's King so-and-so of Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. His son did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then you'll have a great one come along like Josiah or someone like that or Hezekiah who does these great things. But then it'll go back and say, then they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Matthew's not highlighting a grand time in the history of Israel. Matthew, in fact, intentionally says, and here's from David to the what? The deportation of Israel. They're, they're being captured by this pagan country, Babylon. You may remember the book of Daniel. Daniel was in captivity in Babylon. You remember that story. I bring that up to share this. Matthew intentionally shows us some terrible places in the story. Being captive. And then sort of coming back for being captive and having some kings, but from there to the birth of Jesus, not a whole lot of positivity is really going on, it doesn't seem like. I share that because I want you to understand that one of the lessons we learned from this genealogy is that God is at work, good or bad. If you're like me, you could share some stories of the good, but if you're like me, you could share some stories of the bad. He's working in the darkest parts of your personal story and my personal story to do what Romans 8.28 says all things, he didn't say all things are good, did he? But he said somehow all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Many people find Christmas and find the holidays some of the darkest and most depressing times of the year. Well, the good news is this God works even in the difficult times. Even in those difficult, sinful stories that may be in our past, God's still at work. But number four is this. The gospel, and I'm so glad for this, the gospel is for the outsider. The gospel is for the outsider. I've already mentioned this. Matthew didn't put the big names on the marquee that you would necessarily be proud of. Tamar. David and his sin. We haven't mentioned Ruth yet, but one of the things about Ruth is she, she's not even of Jewish descent. In fact, several of the women that are mentioned, they're not, they're not even Jewish background. It says specifically uh, Tamar's uh, husband was, 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 another, was another, uh, another from another country. 
Rahab's certainly from Jericho. She wasn't Jewish. Ruth wasn't Jewish because she came with a mother-in-law who is actually a Moabite, who at one time was the enemies of Israel. But yet she's the grandmother of King David himself. Manasseh's in this story. I don't know if you picked up on that name, but one of the things about King Manasseh is he was one of the most wicked and godless kings in Israel's history. Many of the names in this lineage are surrounded in scandal. Prostitutes, adultery, murder, kings that just lived their whole lives in total opposition to God. People who weren't, quote-unquote, of the right lineage. People of, who were not Jewish descent. We know all these things. The fact that they even mention women at all in a male-dominated society. Jesus came for the outcast. David Platt said it this way. He said, these names are included in the line that leads to Christ so that you and I can know our names are included in the line that leads from Christ. Because guess what? You and I are outcasts too. I love that we can say from this passage, as one pastor put it, it's not just for prophecies and princes, but it's for prostitutes and pagans. But we learn from other parts of the New Testament that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, we learn from one prophet in the Old Testament, Jeremiah put it this way, he said, Oh God, if you kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? If any of us had to put our sins on a screen, perhaps like this, and you saw Chapman Braswell, and it named all the evil that's in my heart, all the sin that you've thought and done, who could stand against that? Who, who, could even, who could even hang our heads up after that? We're outcasts in the sense of without Christ, we're without hope, but praise God, this genealogy is real because there's one who's named Jesus who did come, and Matthew gets us to the point where Jesus is born, and he tells us the rest of the story that he lived a sinless life, that he died on a cross and he paid for our sins and that three days later he rose again. Jesus is for the outcast. He's for you and he's for me. And everybody we ever come across, we can honestly with a straight face and with love tell them Jesus will save you too. And then point number five. Jesus, he's the ultimate rest. Jesus is the ultimate rest. And I want you to listen as we, as we look at this, because when you read this genealogy, I've already pointed this out, it's three sets of 14. When you look at the consonants in David's name, they add up to 14. You got, I had to do a little math here, it's been a while, but 14 threes is the same thing as six sets of seven. Jesus, in the story, becomes the seventh seven if that makes sense. Seven times seven being 49. When you go through the Bible, these, this idea of seven is a significant number. In fact, I can't help but think of the Old Testament concept of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, what you find out is that every seventh year, what God taught his people was that every seventh year, the year of Jubilee, all debts were forgiven and all slaves were freed. With all these things going on, I want you to turn and think about this idea of Jesus being rest. I want you to flip over Matthew, because I believe Matthew picks up on this later on. 
I'm going to read Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30. I want you to listen to this. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What I want you to understand today is that Christ, this historical event that took place, this man Jesus, who's Christ the Lord, he came to bring order out of the chaos, as Matthew put it, after the deportation. Matthew shows us that Jesus is the seventh, seventh, seven. Jesus is the ultimate rest. I shared with you earlier that I'd share the rest of the story about the Wycliffe Bible Translators. So let me tell you the rest of the story, and I believe it'll, it'll really help us to see the importance of what Matthew is teaching us with this idea of Jesus being our rest. Back to Des and Jenny, our missionaries, entire life spent, super smart people, studying hard so that they can interact with people who's never read and write in their lives, learning how to read and write their language, writing the language for them, and then finally they translated, they started with the Gospel of Matthew, and they finished up that genealogy, and they did their work, and then they reached out to the mission Wycliffe's itself, and the process basically is they turn it in, it gets published and all that, and they had been, and meanwhile, they're not just sitting around translating, they're talking about Jesus with the, with the tribe and with the people, uh, a people group in Papua New Guinea. And as they're sharing these things, finally the truck comes. The day comes where this truck full of, of Bibles, little tiny ones, but just the Gospel of Matthew, I don't know if it was a pamphlet or what, but they came in, they had, they had plenty of that stuff, it was on a truck. Much to Des and Jenny's just utter disappointment, the people were more interested in the truck than they were the contents of the truck. Imagine if your life's work is put into something like this. You're, you're thinking, this is going to be the breakthrough. These people are going to read about Jesus, and we're going to see some people come to know Christ. They weren't interested at all. So Des and Jenny were dejected. But then they finally got a little bit of traction and got these little copies of the Gospel of Matthew out to the people. And there was a handful of people that they were able to teach to read. One of those people was sort of an elder statesman, a, a, a tribal leader in the, in the, in the group, people group there. And he called Des and Jenny and said, I want y'all to come over. We've got something to talk about. Well, Des and Jenny, they go to his house. And here's what happened, and I'll just read it to you right out of their book. It says this, Des felt scared because they're about to talk to him. They all got him in a room, and they're going to talk about this Gospel of Matthew. He says, He did not know if the list of names, that is the genealogy, offended some ritual taboo about which he didn't know, or the people angry that it was being so blatantly publicized he was in an awkward position. So they kept on reading. Matthew was the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, and so on and so on. They read the genealogy. And then, Des, he says, he raised his eyes to look at all those right in front of him from the people groups and that leader. And he saw not anger, but he says incredulity. 
And that leader demanded, he said, why didn't you tell all this to us before? And then he said this, no one bothers to write down the ancestors of spirit beings. It's only real people (laughs) who record their genealogical table. Someone else in the room cried, Jesus must be a real person. And another person said, 14 generations, that's two hands and a foot. That is, counting your fingers and your toes. And another person said, that's a very, very long time. Another one shouted, Jesus' ancestry goes back further than ours. And then one person said this to Des, as he had tears in his eyes. He says, then what Des has been teaching us What the mission has been saying about Jesus, it must be real. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, this story, it is real. It is what brings us the ultimate rest. As we think about the season of Advent, I can't think of a better time to contemplate God's love for us, to contemplate the joy we have in Christ and the hope and the peace than to ponder the fact that Matthew took time to write down for us a genealogy that shows us from start to finish. This story is not a once upon a time, it's the real thing. And that he brings us rest, and this story makes all the difference in the world. I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we live in a world where many times there's unrest. We live in a world where many times there's no hope. We live in a world where there's no righteousness. But God, you came and you fulfilled your promises that you gave us. You give us hope knowing that while we were yet sinners, just like the people in the genealogy. God, Christ died for us. Heavenly Father, you give us your grace to know that we too can trust in this Savior, Jesus Christ, and we can have hope in him. God, I pray for, your, for our people, your people today, that as we contemplate Christmas, maybe there's someone that we need to show your love to. God, I pray that you'd give us the strength and courage to do that. Maybe some of us need to go back and remember to find rest in you. God, maybe today we would call out on you and we would obey you as we learn lessons from your story that, God, you make us part of, and for that we're grateful. Heavenly Father, as we, in just a moment, take communion together, I pray that just as in Advent we anticipate the birth of Jesus while at the same time longing for the day of your second coming. You say in the scriptures that we take the Lord's table until that day again. May we, as we take this bread and drink this cup, may we remember your great sacrifice, and may we take it together in anticipation of that second coming. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.